podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca, we have one of my favourite T20 players in the world to talk about his career so far. Hi, I'm Colin Ingram, professional cricket player. At 23, he was without a pro contract and was thinking about going back to school to finish studying agriculture. But he stuck with cricket, and that seems to have gone pretty well. We chat about his ODI career, not seeing balls from really good bowlers, his pre-meditation, his love of county cricket, being a Colpack, and how he turned himself from a nerdler into one of the best T20 batsmen in the world. My first question is a very important one. Is your father still playing cricket? Yes, he is. Uh, <laughs> he played a 20-over match, sort of a friendly, two weeks ago. He kept in both innings and was very surprised that on a Tuesday he still wasn't stiff. So he says he's obviously working too hard on the farm, but still enjoying his cricket. And he'll be joining a Veterans Week. I think it's sort of like a trial week for, uh, I think it's the over-50s World Cup that's coming later in the year. He's been an honorary invite, I think, just to go and have a good social time. But I think he's really looking forward to that. He must be what, 66, 67 now? 67, yeah. Still incredibly fit. I think the sort of work he does on the farm daily keeps him incredibly fit and strong, but still loves the game. And uh, I sort of uh, try and encourage him as much as possible to stay playing as long as he can because it gets him off the farm. It's good social time. And, and he's made so many friends over the years that he gets to reconnect with. And he's also just a cricket lover. He follows the game, you know, around the world, whether I'm playing or not. So it's always nice to chat to him about the game. And, and we've always had that, you know, sort of in common and, and kept us close. You obviously came from a farm yourself. You went to, I suppose, for a South African point of view, you went to a non-traditional sort of cricket school, not one of the bigger cricket schools, although Ricky Wessels was there at the same time as you. So you guys were trying to make it into a cricket school. You also <laughs> didn't get picked up for any South African underage teams. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. Uh, yeah, I mean, Woodridge is a, it's a small school. It is a private school, but it is quite small in numbers. So we're encouraged to play as many sports as possible. Obviously, you had to compete against some really big schools. The cricket was always, you know, something that the school done okay at. So, um, you know, we went to a number of independent schools weeks and, you know, fortunate enough to play against some big schools. I learned some great lessons along the way on, you know, how to get the most out of your teammates and be a good team man as well. So I always find it as a positive talking responsibility and you're sort of under pressure as one of the better players to try and make a performance each weekend. Um, you know, I still got great mates from playing at school. And like you say, you know, Ricky was there as well. So it was actually nice when he pushed up because uh, it was nice to have someone else who could, you know, get a big score. And uh, in his last couple of years, he played incredibly well. What was the second part? Well, I suppose what I'm asking is most South African stars basically go to a big, big school and that's how they get known, or they get pushed yeah. into the underage setup. You went to a small school, and then you didn't make it to the underage setup. It made it hard for you sort of doubly, didn't it? You're also not from a big city, not from Cape Town or Joburg either. Yeah. No, obviously Port Elizabeth's sort of uh, low-key. Um, you know, I was fortunate in that I did play in a lot of winter squads, which was the Eastern Province setup. So I was in and around that, but not in terms of national colours. I was selected in the SA school side. That's your under-18 week. I didn't actually play in the game because uh, I'd taken a, a Yorker on the foot during the week. So I was there and I watched the game, but I never actually played in it. And then for most of us, the big one was to be selected in the SN19 side. And that was sort of the gateway into your franchise teams and your, and your first class teams. But 
I missed out on selection. I was devastated at the time and went off to university. And in a way, it taught me some harsh uh, lessons at a young age. But I also got to play at every different level from there. So university level, I played club level, moved into an amateur setup, then into the franchises. So, you know, I got to play some club cricket overseas in, in the off seasons. So in a way, it was a, sort of a, a complete journey, but it was quite a harsh lesson at that age. Yeah. And so you went off to study agriculture and then you played for Free State. So that's, I suppose, almost like a second division sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, at that stage, I I thought to myself, well, if I'm my parents worked for a farmer, so if I could use my cricket to get a degree, you know, I was going to do that. And two years in, uh, cricket had gone quite well. Obviously, at like you say, a smaller franchise, I'd played in the in the sort of in the amateur team, which is like the second team. Things had started going quite well. So at that stage, the franchise system down in Port Elizabeth it had actually been away in East London, and it had come back. And they decided to try and get some of us young guys who'd sort of been part of the system, you know, growing up to come back to the. So that's why my studies were sort of cut short, because at that stage, only having six first class teams in the country, I felt like it was too good an offer to come back to and started off on a rookie contract. Yeah. And that's where it sort of all began for me. You played a couple of years for Warriors. You did very well in the white ball cricket, struggled a lot more in first class cricket. And then at the age of 23, you've gone from studying agriculture at university and played for all these different teams. I think you played in Scotland as well. At the age of 23, though, you didn't have a contract, did you? You weren't sure what your future in cricket really was at that point. Oh, 100% correct. At that stage, I'd been on a rookie contract for two years in the franchise setup. And um, I think at that point, most people sort of have an idea of, are you going to make it or not? And being highly competitive, our system had gone from 11 teams down to six a couple of years before. So, you know, the bowling lineups were at that stage for me probably too much to handle, to be honest. You know, put it up on the weekend and a, and a four prong sort of seam attack of like a Dale Stane, Mornay Morkel, Albie Morkel. It was quite a lot to handle as an opening batsman. And I, I definitely didn't have the tools at that stage. But after that, I had a few white ball experiences, which went pretty well, like you say. But being a competitive setup and not many places uh, for offer, they, they didn't offer me a contract. So, I was sort of out in the wilderness. Um, I took a job, like you say, a, a club job in Scotland just to try and get some money into the bank because I, I didn't really know what I was going to do. So I thought maybe I should go back and study and finish my studies because at least then I would have something uh, sort of set in stone and something that could help me go forward if I wasn't going to play cricket. But in my time away, I, I realized maybe I was closer than I realized and that if I could put some money in the bank, come back, pay some rent and, and try and stay in the game, there might still be opportunities. So I thought I'd give it another couple of years and even if I wasn't contracted, there might be spots up for grabs. Fortunately, it went pretty well in the next year and Robin Peterson got a national contract. So they ended up being a spot available. And the, in the amateur side, I'd gone really well. And at the back end of the season, we used to have five T20s. Uh, that was all we had in the year. I think I was in a very hungry space. Things had gone well. I was on my own, trained on my own. You're sort of out in the wilderness. And Fortunately, it went, those five games was a window into what I could do. So that went really well. And the next season, I found myself back in the mix. So I've often chatted to young players and I say, sometimes it's just one or two games where people get a glimpse of what you can do. And I think I might have even surprised myself in that way. So it was a great confidence builder that in even though short competition, I knew it was kind of do or die and that I could perform under that sort of pressure. And then to be rewarded with a contract again just gave me the confidence and things sort of grew quite quickly from there. 
And when you say quite quickly, I mean, I think that's an understatement. I mean, you're talking about (laughs) at 23, you're thinking, should I go back and continue to study farming? And at 25, you're playing ODIs for South Africa. I mean, that's quite a turnaround from someone going, can I even do this from there to there? That period, so you start, I think you can correct me, but if I remember right, you made 100 in your first ODI against Zimbabwe. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I think it started before that when I was sort of unemployed and in the wilderness. A few sort of really key things happened in my life. One, I decided, well, I'm not going to listen to anyone else anymore. I'm going to listen to myself. I'm an easygoing person and I, I maybe had listened too much to how, you know, what levels I could get to and what I could and couldn't do. I knew in every team I'd played, I'd been able to perform and, you know, hopefully affect the result. I've always try and get a win, basically, whether that's in the field with some free catch, even though I'm not the most athletically gifted or a run out or something, just trying to affect the game. And that's how I grew up playing. And I, I sort of went back to that, which was great. So even if it looked a bit messy with the batted stages, it seemed to be more effective again. And I was a lot more dangerous. And I think I surprised a few people in that way. But it was definitely a turning point for me in that I now played in my own way. And I tried not to let too many people who I didn't maybe trust as much sort of influence how I wanted to play. And it was a great lesson for me. It stuck with me through my career that there's a very few people that you can maybe trust with your game. But at the end of the day, you're 22 yards away and the ball's coming down and it's up to you sort of thing. And that sort of just catapulted me. So when I did bump into the national team, like you said, it was quite quick, but I was around, I mean, I was sort of out of my depth. If I think about it, there was, you know, Hashim Amla, Jacques Callis, Graham Smith. These were guys that I had idolized and grown up watching sort of thing. And now I was in the mix in amongst them, you know, batting with them, A.B. de Villiers, J.P. Dumini and, I just tried to do my thing. I'd been on that sort of journey for a couple of years and it had been really successful. And I just try to stick to that. And I think in a way it was quite nice. I kept it simple and I just batted and did as well as I could and try to affect the game. And, um, you know, the, the first part of my international career went pretty well, to be honest. Why do you think specifically the white ball? When we talked last time, you were talking to me about the fact that you felt out of your depth a bit with the red ball and you mentioned the bowling attacks that you went up against. But there's nothing in your numbers that suggests you were ever out of your depth with the white ball. It was just easier for you to focus on that. There are some players, the red ball, there's too many possibilities. With the white ball, it's just like, well, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. Or is there something else you think in your game that lent to the white ball? Well, sort of growing up and at a young age, we all wanted to play test level. At that stage, white ball wasn't as big and... I think I had this idea in my head of how it had to be played, but that didn't necessarily marry up with my sort of instinctual side of the game. And I think if I'd grown up, you know, another 10 years later, my red ball might have been a lot more successful. I learned sort of later in my career how to deal with it. And, uh, you know, I felt like even just before I stopped playing that I was getting better and better at it. But I was definitely more of an attacking and instinctual player. And at stages, I totally took that out of my red ball game, which almost limited me in a way, which uh, sounds crazy now. But I, I, I sort of put away so many shots that I didn't put any pressure back on the bowl. I didn't feel very free. And it sort of affected that I, I sat there like a sitting duck at stages. And especially at the top of the order, you need some sort of weapons that you're going to put pressure back onto the bowler. And so that side of my game, I wrestled with it up and down and up and down. Whereas white ball, you know, the onus on me was to go and play positively up front and, and be instinctual and exert pressure back onto the bowlers. So in that way, it just came a lot more naturally to me. Although I worked incredibly hard at red ball, I probably worked double hard at red ball as white ball, but I didn't see the same results. And, and it just showed me as I got older that the way I was trying to play was a way that I thought I should play, not a way I felt I should play. And like I say, in the last couple of years, even at Glamorgan and and playing here at the Warriors, I got more and more successful at it. But it was only through being a little more free, um, 
not putting too many limitations on myself and, and actually pulling a few shots out. So I started taking on the short ball a bit more and, um, you know, making sure if I nicked off on, uh, driving, uh, you know, drive was a big shot for me to get run. So it wasn't the end of the world. Whereas back in the day, I'd just stopped driving again. So it was a good learning curve. And it's something that when I now chat to young players, you know, I make it very aware that there are separate accounts, but there's a certain amount that has to be natural to you. You don't want to be restricting your game so much that it's to your detriment. So, you know, you've got to find a way to get runs off. And, and, and unfortunately, in Red Bull, at the start of my career, I didn't really do that. You said that you started ODI cricket pretty well. I think it was your fifth ODI you played against Pakistan. This is the bowling attack. Shoah Bakhtar, Abdul Razak, Shahid Afridi, Wahab Riaz, and Syed Ajmal. You got some runs against that attack, if I remember correctly, sir. <laughs> it was my first away trip with the national team. And like just to be on tour, was it was massively exciting for me. And to go to a new country, I mean, obviously the UAE was something I'd never experienced before. And like I said, I think in that stage of my career, everything was very simple. I just wanted to do my job and make sure I did it well. And I remember a very simple game plan. So I was like, well, I'm not going to pick Sage Admiral, so I'm just going to sweep him. And everyone told me, no, he bowls too fast. You can't sweep him. I said, well, if I'm waiting down on one knee before he lets it go, it doesn't matter how fast he bowls, I'm going to sweep it. <laughs> and there were certain things that just really worked on that trip. Uh, you know, I got a bit lucky as well. Nicked one and went between keeper and second slip. And it was a great experience for me. It was it's still one of my favorite tours, to be honest. It was about 50 degrees, which I'd never played in before. Subcontinent, this big spin attack uh, when a 3D was bowling and Ajmal, uh, Hafiz was a handful on that trip. So, And then like to play against a guy like Shaya Bakhtar, who I'd watched as a 17, 18-year-old. He could bowl 160 k's an hour. It was just a great experience. And uh, I, I was living off that first innings where I'd got some runs and I was confident. And at that stage, I still felt like everything was going really well. It is though really interesting that you're not that far removed from being so unsure of yourself and suddenly you're facing the world's fastest bowler, two of the best spinners in the world, and Wahab Riaz as well, one of the fastest left armers. How much your mindset had changed in that little period? Like how much of that is just purely you weren't confident? You know, there's that thing, isn't it, where you don't believe you belong and then suddenly you believed you belong and, and everything changes for you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, in the period away from the game where I was like, okay, what's well, do or die? there was definitely a feeling of like I had to change the way I was doing things. If I carried on down the same path, I would just be mediocre and whatever. And, and I'd probably just peter out. I'd, you know, mentally I wouldn't be able to cut it. So I had changed a lot of the way I was thinking about the game, but I also changed fitness standards, try to be a lot smarter in what I was doing and, and spent loads of time hitting balls. I mean, I used to get criticized by the national team that I hit too many balls. But for me, that was the way I had to work my way in. I didn't feel ever like I woke up one morning and I was just going to be an international cricket star. So, And that was fine. I was happy with that. I said, i got to get a thicker skin. i got to hit more balls than anyone else. i got to be tactically, i got to be smart. And, and I think that was the change in those couple of years where I went away and I was like, it was do or die. It was like, i got to make it work or I'm going to end up going working for someone and, and that's going to be my life. So... It was a great life lesson, to be honest. And, you know, when you try something and it starts to work, I think that does build confidence. It's probably carried me through the rest of my career, to be honest. You had a really good period in ODI cricket. And, I mean, you mentioned some of the players before, but, you know, Smith, Amla, Callis, De Villiers, slots weren't that easy to find. There must have always been a feeling that it would not be hard to slip you back out of the team. But up until the 2013 Champions Trophy, everything was going great. And then the 2013 Champions Trophy was, sorry to bring it up, but it was was a bit of a horrendous thing. I remember when we first chatted and you, and you told me about it and I went and had a look. So Jimmy Anderson got you for a duck. I mean, that's fair. Lassif Malinga got you for a duck. Again, that's fair. 
Mohamed Afan got you for a duck. Again, another huge, especially in those days, a very good bowler. And then Sohail Tanvir. You went up against some incredible bowlers in that sort of period, didn't you? To be honest, like up until there was a short period there where it just derailed really quickly. Uh, you know, I felt really confident. Even early on in that Champions Trophy, I'd got a 70 in a, a rain-affected game in Cardiff against the West Indies. Well, I'd sort of been fitting in amongst, like you say, the Callisers, the Smiths, the Amlers, the De Villiers. I basically just filled in the position. So if, if Callis maybe needed a little bit of time off, then I'd bat at three. If Amla was away or injured, then I'd bat at, you know, I'd open the batting. And at that stage, I just ended up in this opening slot and ran into, like you said, that was a semi-final, I think. Anderson bowled me about four way swingers and an inducker, which I did I missed by about a foot. And then bumped into, which is, I still think, one of the hardest bowlers I've ever faced as a left-hander, Lasith Malinga with a new ball. So went to Sri Lanka, faced one ball there, got a first baller, then came to South Africa and we bumped into Irfan for the first time. So early in that series, I actually got 100. He didn't play, he was injured which is still one of my favorite innings because I, I felt under pressure. I felt like I was, like you say, I was easy to drop. I was in and out. I was moving around positions. And that 100 in Bloemfontein was probably one of my favorite just because I knew how much pressure I was under. And just I played quite freely and quite well. I was still against Janaid Khan, you know, the, the usual candidates. And I played really well again. So I felt like confidence was building. And then Irfan came back for the last three games of the series and just it was like one or two balls, clean me up, clean me up, clean me up. And at that stage, he was bowling about 140-odd, and it was swinging. And to bump into that quality of bowler with a new ball, you know, if they bowl the right ball, you, you're in big trouble. And I think modern-day TV can make it look quite slow. It's sort of, oh, it's only swung a little bit. But I often say to friends of mine that uh, some of those deliveries, which I do not remember seeing properly, like you just <laughs> it was like a blur. And the stumps were lying everywhere, and off you go, you know. So... It did derail me and it shook my confidence a lot as well. And I think being quite a straightforward guy, I think people probably saw that. And at that stage, I was competing with, you know, there were other guys sort of starting to put their hand up. Like a Fafdu Plessis, JP Dumini was also, he was in some good nicks. So, you know, I was competing with world-class players again and it just wasn't really working out for me, to be honest. In the middle of that ODI run, you also went to the IPL. You didn't get on the field that often. I think maybe your, your top score might have been a, a game that was rained out, if I remember correctly. That's correct. When you were in that IPL, did you feel ready to play at that level? Because you hadn't played much T20 cricket before you got picked for the IPL. Yeah, I hadn't played a lot, but what I had played, like we, at that stage, we'd only played five a year in South Africa. So the year after that, I think it went to 10, a double round. But whatever I had played, you know, it had gone really well. And the IPL had come out to South Africa the year before, if you remember, it was held in South Africa. And we'd played a lot of warm-up games against the IPL teams. And I'd got loads of runs. So when I went to the IPL, I was like ready to go. I was getting quite frustrated that I was sitting on the side a lot because I could see spaces for me to play. Yeah, so first game of IPL, I uh, got cleaned up by Malinga again. <laughs> so yeah, it was a tough period in my career where I, I kept feeling like I just wanted to break free. And uh, I, I bumped into some good bowlers and it definitely rocked my confidence. But yeah, I mean, I was ready to go for that IPL. I, I was quite excited because I, I was at Delhi and I could see a number of batting slots. I didn't know at the time and probably was a bit naive that, you know, Greg Shippard was the coach and he'd got a couple of Australians in that I didn't know that well, a Matthew Wade, um, Aaron Finch at that stage. So I didn't know them well, but obviously he did. And they were sort of got the nod ahead of me and I carried drinks for most of the tournament, but it was still a great experience, and uh, I haven't gone back to as many IPLs as I probably would have wanted, but that first one, I definitely felt I was in the right place at the right time. 
One thing that's interesting about you when I talk to you, a lot of players, when they get signed for a county deal, talk about how they always dreamed of playing county cricket. And I always wonder how much that's true. But I know in your particular case that you did think about county cricket a lot because one of your friends, Grant, his father was Kenny McEwen, who played almost a thousand professional cricket games between Essex and (laughs) South Africa as well. So you grew up hearing about county cricket as like this incredible thing. So you did kind of dream of one day wanting to play in county cricket, didn't you? Oh, 100%. I think having my dad, who was a big county cricket follower, and then him talking up the era in county cricket where they had these big overseas players coming in, the West Indian guys, the fast bowlers from Pakistan, and then spending time even just chatting to Kenny about his days at, at Essex. And it was something that always captivated me. And, and obviously then spending time out playing club cricket in the UK, seeing that this level was within my grasp, but I wasn't quite there yet. It was something I always wanted to do. And I remember this period where I went through a rocky period and I was like, what's the next thing I would like to do? Because it's tough to sit at home all winter. I've never been, and it sounds weird because I I get flack from other players, but the whole four months of training and preseason for county guys or even guys here in South Africa, like as a domestic player, I almost feel like that time could be used better. And England have a lot of squads that they send out to the subcontinent or South Africa used to send emerging squads to Australia. I've always found that really good value. Because just in being in the gym and the indoor center is not always the best thing for your game. So at that stage, I felt like, well, I needed more cricket. So county had always been this dream. And I was like, I think this is where I need to go. I need to go and experience it, try and get in as an overseas player and, and get some game time. If I remember right, you replaced, uh, I think it was Elvira Peterson at Somerset. But then quickly after that, Jacques Rudolph was at Glamorgan and they offered you the Colpack deal. By that point, you weren't really thinking you were going to come back to South Africa and play straight away. They had moved on a little bit from you. How hard, though, is still that decision to make that Colpac call? Yeah, at that stage, I mean, I'd like you said, I had a little taster at Somerset, and I was, you know, I'd come out for, I think, 40, 20s, two four-day games, and the, you know, the seven one-days for, you know, Royal one, uh, London one-day cup. So I'd had a taste and I was like, oh, this is what I need to be doing. I think this will really take my game to the next level. And then to have an opportunity to go and do it properly, so to speak, like sign a three-year deal. And at that stage, like you said, I think things here in South Africa weren't, it hadn't gone well, they'd moved on. And in a way, when I signed Colpac, people were quite comfortable with it in a way. Like Mm. uh, in my mind, I thought I'll go and play there. Hopefully I'll get some extra experience. My game will grow. I can always come back. I'm young enough. Just after that, there was the Colpac debacle where a whole bunch of guys started signing and, and, you know, a few guys that had been playing in the national team. So it's sort of like uh, when a lot of people ask me about it, I always say, I think different people sign for different reasons. You can't like blanket it like, oh, guys just want to go for money or guys just want this. Every person's got a slightly different argument. But definitely for me, it was something that I'd always wanted to do. I felt it was the perfect time. And the responsibility of going to grow my game was like right there. So I was extremely excited about it, even though it was a difficult decision because you are pulling your name completely out. I sort of at that time had confidence that if I went well, that I'd be back because I was still playing in South Africa at that stage. So I was doing the six months in the UK, six months in South Africa. So I sort of wanted to use it as a a period to grow my game and, and, you know, hopefully come back and play here again. One of the things I noticed going through your record is just how much more cricket you suddenly started playing. Like, obviously, county cricket has a game. I think they have three games a day, from what I can tell, half the time. Um, You literally went from not playing a lot of cricket to suddenly playing a massive amount of cricket. I would think for you, that is probably a very good thing. That's not going to work for every cricketer. But for you, I would have thought that you have to work your way in a little bit more and you have to work out your game by playing. 
So it seems like county cricket for you is almost a perfect match. Oh, most definitely. From not long after being there, I felt like I'd always needed to play. Yeah. And it reflected in my results as well. I, I sort of found myself playing or had a chance to tinker with my game because you've got games coming so quickly that, you know, you can actually put things into practice a couple of days after, you know, you've done it again and again and again. So it was, it was the perfect scenario for my game. And I had this feeling like if I grow my game, that'll carry me. Now, I was loving my time at Glamorgan as well. I fitted in beautifully with the county. You know, we had a very competitive white ball side, which suited me perfectly. And then red ball side was a chance to sort of really try and work on my game and, and grow it because we weren't doing as well. In a way, it was the perfect match for me. I want to talk about your white ball cricket a little bit. So let we go all the way back to when you started with the Warriors. You used to smash the ball everywhere. Your early strike rates, even in one-day cricket, were really, really high. There were lots of sixes. I think maybe one of your first scoring shots, if I remember in one of the games I found, was a six. You know, there were lots of sixes going on in your career. By the time you got to Glamorgan, you were a wicketkeeper, <laughs> randomly. Your first game, you started as a leg spinner. We haven't even talked about that. You were picked as a leg spinner, didn't get any wickets. You become a wicketkeeper, but you also become a bit of a nerdler in one-day cricket for a little while there. Is that because you were trying to keep your spot in the South African team, or is that just something, maybe you weren't thinking about white ball cricket enough, but the early hitter in you had disappeared? Yeah, I think again, I was uh, found myself in this position that I'd been in before at a young age where I was trying to like fight my way again and trying to be consistent. I think that was the thing that I started to look at as I got older, that if I could consistently put numbers on the board, regardless of strike rate, people would value that. Mm. Yeah, in a way, I sort of lost my way a bit again because it was a negative and I've always played better when I'm playing in a positive state of mind and looking to score and play freely. So it was a period where I, I, I try to find scores often, but, you know, it wasn't affecting the game in the way that, uh, you know, I'd grown up doing. So it was just another learning curve, I think. Sort of like, I often say, even with young batters, you overdo it, you swing at every ball and you get out, and then you underdo it, you block too many, and then you sort of find that happy medium. And I think during that period, it became very apparent to me that I am an aggressive player. I do play freely. And that if I put too many shots away again, like I'd done in Red Bull early in my career, that I might be more consistent, but I'm not going to affect the game as I would like to. So another great learning curve. And I felt like, and I don't know what it reflects in the numbers, but from about 2016, I just went back into that aggressive mode. And it was helpful having the last, having 14 games, because all of a sudden I found myself playing a lot of T20 cricket and being able to just sort of find my way again. Off the top of my head, I think your strike rate in T20 cricket at that point was about 123. And for the five years since then, it's been well over 140. So it's a big, big jump up. So you clearly have changed the way you go. You've also averaged more, which is quite interesting as well. So <laughs> it's all come good. I think one of the things I've found interesting talking to you before is, and you mentioned it earlier with the sweep, like, you know, you're going up against Syed Ajmal and you're going to sweep him no matter what. You're going to be ready for him no matter what he bowls. You're going to be down ready for the sweep. And when you look at your T20 cricket, there's also a lot of premeditation there. So a lot of times you are making big calls before the ball. Is that something you went back to in this 2016 period? Yeah, definitely. I started saying if I, um, I think it was difficult because when we grew up, we were all, like I said, growing up playing mainly red ball. It was all like, see the ball, wait for it, then make your decision sort of thing. Play every ball on its merit, that type of thing. And I started finding that, especially playing in county cricket, you know, we played uh, a lot of games with one short side, one long side. So I started 
almost knowing what the guys were going to bowl or what their tactics was. And as soon as I picked that up, I could get ahead quickly, predetermining and, and finding shots. There was a period where I really worked hard on being able to change. So, you know, predetermining, okay, this is what I'm going to play. And then if it wasn't there, sort of bail out or do something else. And it was something that I just added to my game that I found just really worked for me because now I could read the game and I could get ahead. But if it wasn't quite there, I would just be like, okay, well, that one didn't work out. I'll get to the next one. And in a way, that really made me effective. And that enabled me to up my strike rate, I think, because I was sort of starting to get ahead of bowlers and chatting to some of the real good players. They were doing it. They were sort of predetermining almost every ball. Like, I know what he's going to bowl, so I'm going to do it. So it had been something new that I'd added to my game, but it definitely worked for me almost straight away. And having that county experience where we were playing the blasts, it was coming thick and fast. Having one short side seemed to be something that on a lot of ground seemed to be something that like really awoke that side of my game because I was like, oh, they're going to go wide Yorkers. Okay, what can I do from here? And then started building that in, you know, with other things like, oh, they're going to bowl. This team doesn't like bowling the Yorkers. They want to bowl slow balls into the wicket for longer. What can I do with that? And just started bringing that into my training. So that part of my game grew, but it was something new that I, I definitely added. And I think that that sort of probably accounted to a lot of my strike rate. Another question I have is, before that year, your breakout year in 2016, did you start thinking about T20 cricket more before you played it? Or was it playing a lot of cricket that allowed you to think about it more? Interesting question. I think a bit of both. I think definitely one, you know, playing quite a lot of it, playing 14 games in a season, you know, county cricket-wise. And I was going, well, it's sort of like, well, oh, you're quite good at this. Maybe there's other opportunities in other places. So like one of the first ones I looked at was Big Bash because I was like, wow, this looks like my type of cricket. It looks like solid old school. The teams were, you know, quite high profile at that stage. And, you know, having played only on one trip to Australia, and I was desperate to get back there. So I started realizing there were opportunities out there. If my T20 game grew, there were more opportunities out there. And especially if I wasn't playing international cricket, what's there and what's next? Yeah. And started seeing, you know, more T20 opportunities out there. So I, it was definitely something I, I was conscious of. I wanted to do well in that format. And I started adding a bit of power hitting stuff and hitting over the leg side was something that came natural to me. So I wanted to play to that strength. Sort of always hit the ball in the air over the leg side, which... Um, that stages get to be caught at deep back and square often, but it also provides with a lot of sixes and fours. So, you know, I started realizing that this was the way the cricket world was going and there were opportunities out there. And uh, you know, I think I just worked a little differently on that format. I think you played something like 200 T20s in the last five years. And over the first, what, eight, nine years of your career, probably played about 70 or 80. Like the, the difference of the number of games that you've learned. And now, you know, you've played in the CPL and you've been back in the IPL where you had a better run of it and you played in bunches of different leagues. What have you learned about T20 cricket over the, the sort of international scale of it? Like you learned it in South Africa, you perfected it in England, but what have you learned from playing in all these different leagues? Well, firstly, it's been an incredible journey. So without international cricket for a lot of players, there's these opportunities out there to go and play in other countries and other leagues and learn and, and grow, which... I mean, it's been a fantastic experience, you know, all around. And I, in that way, I feel really fortunate. One of the things I've learned is that the game is moving. It's moving and the skill level, even over the last 10 years, has increased incredible amounts. I mean, the things we see guys doing and how far the balls are going and the different deliveries even. So from when, when I started playing, even, you know, maybe like 2015 or 16, most bowlers would have one slow ball. That would be about it. Now, guys have got knuckle balls, leg cutters, off cutters. They've got to have it all because the batting power and the hitting power has increased. So 
it's shown me that I've had to keep my game moving forward. I remember even when I first got out to county cricket, I didn't really reverse sweep much. So I had to bring that in, I had to bring laps in. So in a way, it's uh, it's allowed my game to keep developing because to keep up with uh, you know, sort of the current demand of the T20 world has been really exciting. And to keep reinventing yourself, like whenever you think I'm sort of pretty set and sorted, it only takes a couple of games and then you've got to start the whole process over again. So in that way, it's kept me incredibly hungry to keep performing because it is a format where you're playing high risk often. And I would say that there takes a certain amount of thick skinness in a way that I am going to get out and look like an idiot at stages, but I've got to get on with it quickly because there's another game coming in two days' time. So in that way, I think you know my own game has grown quite a lot on that side of things. And I've had to adapt to this sort of T20 world as well because if I had to pick one format to play for a living, I'd play one-day cricket. It came most naturally to me where I could go through the gears, I could be expansive at stages, and then at other stages, I could manage the innings again. So in a way, it's constantly challenging me. Even this last period, I've been through a you know small dip in form, so to speak. So it's constantly reminding me that I've got to keep reinventing myself and, and keep looking at new ways to get better and keep up with this fast-growing T20 world. You know, we talked about your father at the top still playing cricket in his 60s. I get the feeling you're the sort of person who even after your career will probably still play a little bit, but I'm assuming you may not have thought about this, but coaching is something that you'd be interested in? Oh, most definitely. Uh, it's something that I'm working on at the moment. I've signed into my latest Glamorgan deal that I'm going to be working with some of the young batters and in the academy pipeline. So I'm extremely excited about that side of thing. Uh, I think as you, as I've got older, I sort of fulfill that role in quite a lot of the teams anyway, because um, I think having gone through all the different levels and, you know, trying to stay humble and be a, at the best of times, just a good husband and a solid dad, it makes it easier to me to sort of relay simple information to young players. And I'm looking forward to it. I, I don't know if I would ever, I never say never, but become an international coach or want to coach at a high level, but certainly working with top players from about age 16 to, to maybe early 20s, is something that's, you know, it's sort of grown. It started off a little while ago as maybe sort of an outside mindset, but um, something that I, I'm definitely working towards at the moment. Hopefully at the back end of this year, I'll be completing my level three as well, which is exciting to keep growing that side of the game. I'm just excited to see you in about 30 years time playing in veterans tournaments like your old man. <laughs> Most definitely. I can't see myself just walking away from the game completely. Uh like I've said to you before, I grew up around the cricket field and it's been part of pretty much everyday life for my whole life. So I can't see myself completely removing myself, being away from the game to a certain degree, you know, having a slightly more normal life, being at home with my family more often. That side of things really sort of excites me. So to be settled, you know, in one place and, and be able to play the odd club game on the weekend would still be great to get down with the boys and, uh, you know, have a good day out and, and a beer afterwards. I might take up wicket keeping as well again. Uh, just to be involved as much as possible. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, mate. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for the chat. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoner by The Red Crickets. Red Crickets.